The passage that you just heard came from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 11, and I appreciate the Gladkowski family reading that for us. And by the way, to be a young man and stand up and to read that so clearly in front of you all, that's kind of a big deal. Appreciate you, young man. If you are not familiar, if you haven't read in a while the Old Testament book of Isaiah, I want to encourage you during this month, spend some time reading the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, what you'll discover is I think that you'll see is that the book of Isaiah in some ways reads like the night sky. The text of Isaiah in some ways is like a canvas of pitch black with pinpricks of light that come sparkling through. And there are some passages that are like brilliant bursts of light that come streaming through as you read. And in this Advent season, what we're doing is we're surveying some of those passages in Isaiah that emerge like brilliant beams of light. And that's what's represented by the Advent candles that we light each week. Last week, we lit the candle of faith. Today, we light the candle of hope. And for anyone who maybe isn't totally familiar with Advent, or maybe you didn't get to hear Pastor Otis's sermon last week, Advent is a season of longing for, looking forward to. It's, it's really about expectation for the arrival of a king. And it comes from the backdrop of Roman culture where towns or villages might diligently make preparations for the arrival of the emperor or some sort of dignitary. And that cultural practice was repurposed and repackaged into a series of celebratory type practices that are like a living metaphor to help us get ready for Christmas Day. And it's all about remembering that a king has come in Jesus and one day he will return to us as king. That is the heart of what Advent is all about. And so each week as we light these candles, this is our anthem, remember, receive, and reflect the light. And today I have one goal and I have one goal only and it's that you would walk out of here with more of this. Is that you would walk out of here today with more of the light of hope in your life. And I could look around the room and I could see it on your faces. I could hear it in the way that you sing. Some of you guys walked in here with hope already. You're full. And some of us, maybe we walked in here, maybe not with any at all. Or maybe some of us would say, Rick, it feels like the, the candle of hope is about to flicker out for me. And maybe, maybe, there might be some people in this room, maybe some of you guys who are watching online, who would say, Rick, this is nice. This is nice kind of religious ceremony, but come on, isn't it really designed for people who already have their lives all put together and this just kind of works to give us another hit of spiritual dopamine? And so for anybody who might feel a little jaded, anybody who might feel a little cynical, anybody who might have skepticism when it comes to hope, I want you to know that that's okay. That's allowed. We're so glad that you're here because you deserve to know. You deserve to know, is there a hope that does not disappoint? I've become convinced that you know, stories of hope are universal and they're appealed. No matter where you go around the world, it seems like people are attracted to hope. And when you find true stories of hope, they don't, they don't just appeal, they become addicting. I'm curious, does anybody love true stories of hope? Anybody else out there like me? Okay. Let me tell you one that I became addicted to this year. It's called Welcome to Wrexham. And if you aren't familiar with this, Wrexham is a town in Wales, and the people in that town are just passionately bonkers for their minor league soccer team. And this is not a fictional story. This is a true story. And when it comes to their team, these people have a proud past, but a hopeless present regarding their team, right? 
And if you aren't familiar with the way that, uh, that professional soccer works in the UK, it's very different from professional sports here in the US. In the UK, this minor league team right here, if it performs well, it can get promoted up into the major league team. And it works backwards too. If you are a major league team at the top and you play poorly, you can get demoted, what's called relegated, down to the minor league. And I would imagine after a season like this, there are a lot of Packers fans who are grateful that's not how the NFL works. <laughs> Listen, I'm a Saints fan, so it's like that for me most years. All right, now, all right, so what happened was a couple of American actors went over there and bought this soccer club. And what they did, they renovated the stadium, they invested in the team, they brought in new players, they literally put millions of dollars on the line in the hopes of getting this to a team where it's promoted into a higher league. And so what this show is, it's a kind of a documentary about that. And the question is, will the hope pay off? And wouldn't you know it, it all comes down to the final game on the final episode. And watching it, I just couldn't take it. Like every, time, every episode that I would watch, I would get more hope. And the more hope that I got, the more my stomach was in knots. And so I did what any reasonable person would do. I Googled the ending. <laughs> because I just, got, I just got to know, is this a hope that's going to pay off? Or am I going to be disappointed because I got to watch it relaxed? When it comes to the biblical story of hope, when it comes to the biblical prospect of hope, when it comes to the biblical promise of hope, you can Google the ending that Jesus is going to return. But not only do we get to look forward to the ending, we get to look back. We get to look back at what people in the Old Testament and what guys like Isaiah could only look forward to. They expected, they longed for, they believed that one day a light was going to step into their world of darkness. And that was experienced when Jesus arrived. And when Jesus showed up, he left no room for doubt. He was bold, he was clear, he this is what he said about himself. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. With Jesus, it is light versus the dark. Did you know that Advent is confrontational? Did you know that the heart of Christmas is confrontational? Light, by its very definition, confronts the dark. The essence of what hope is confronts hopelessness. And the arrival of light is only noteworthy if you're already sitting in the dark. And the arrival of hope is only noteworthy if you don't yet have it. And so I just want to ask you, what's going on that causes you to feel like you're sitting in the dark right now? Is there anything in your life, and maybe it's not in your life, but maybe as you look around this world, what is it? that makes it feel like maybe the promise of hope is hollow. I'm just convinced. I'm convinced that this is a season where we need real hope. In the past week, week and a half, this is what my life has been like in the past week and a half. I have sat with people who, who are facing, they've been given an unwanted life change. I've sat with people who are facing some real financial fears and uncertainty. I've sat with people who are on the wrong side of a diagnosis. I've sat with people who've said, I want to, but I just can't pray right now. And if I could be real with you, in the past week, week and a half, I've sat in my own bundle of grief and heavy-heartedness. 
And this is what I'm suggesting we do today, that we take Jesus seriously, is that we hunker down and we get real about all the feelings of darkness and hurts that sit heavy on us, that we bundle up all the unknowns, all the causes of fear or worry or anxiety, all the things in our life that leave us with bruises or maybe even with scars, and we bring them to Jesus and we let him do battle with the things that have been doing battle with us. Today is about looking at Jesus. It's about seeing Jesus and it's about finding in him real hope that does not disappoint. And if you're in need of hope that does not expire and that does not disappoint, look to Jesus. And so now we are going to listen to and look intently at what the prophet Isaiah said about him and when he would come. In Isaiah 11, we're going to read what the Gladkowski family read for us. Chapter 1 says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And so there's this stump, and a shoot new growth is coming out of it. And it says the stump of Jesse. Jesse, if you don't know, was the father of a man named David, and David became king of Israel. And God made a promise, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on this world and its brokenness and its darkness. There is coming a king. And there's going to come a Messiah through this family line. And the coming king is no ordinary king. Somehow, someway, even if Isaiah didn't totally know how to understand it, even if he didn't totally know how to fully explain it, this coming king would be supernatural, able to accomplish for us things that we could never accomplish for ourselves. But what I want us to notice is he says it's coming from the stump of Jesse. Now, if somebody was talking about your family and your family tree and called it a stump, would you take that as a compliment? Why is it called a stump? Because what was once strong is now weak. What was vibrant has been knocked down. It's been cut down. And God has this uncanny way. He's got this habit of taking things that everything about them shouts back to us, there is no hope. And God says, I don't think so. I can bring good out of that. I can bring hope out of that. I can bring things out of that that you could never even imagine. And the kind of thing that God is bringing out of what is broken defies natural explanation. We've got to read this verse in light of a sentence that's coming just a little bit further down the page. I want us to read it in light of verse 10. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Verse 10 says this, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples of, and the nations will rally to him. So it's the shoot, but it's also the root. Saying that Jesus, the one who is coming, is from this ancestral line, but he's also before it. Jesus is before and after. This is why that Jesus is sometimes referred to as the ancient of days. And what Isaiah is trying to make clear is this, that Jesus is God and King. I want us to notice this. Who is it that rallies around him? A banner for the people the nations to rally to him. This is why we say as a church, our vision is to be a church of all cultures because Jesus is a God and King for people of all nations, from all places, from all time. Jesus is God and King. And he is a good teacher that comes to teach the truth, but he's not just a good teacher who teaches the truth. He is the truth. He doesn't just come and show a better way. He is the way. He doesn't just come and bring hope. He is hope. 
And this is how Isaiah describes him. He continues. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The next time you hear a sermon about baptism and you read the passage in the gospel of when Jesus was baptized that the Holy Spirit of God descended on Jesus as a dove, I want you to remember that it was fulfilling this promise that was predicted hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah. The Spirit of God will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And what Isaiah is unpacking for us is that this one who is coming is both human and divine. He is the God who took on humanity. But there's something else that, that Isaiah makes clear that I want us to hunker down and focus on. He says, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Has anyone in here ever been misunderstood? Anyone in here ever been misrepresented? How many of you would say that there are times in your life where you feel like people treated you wrongly because they were treating you through the lens of their bias or through gossip? Anybody know what that's like? It'll never be like that with Jesus. It'll never be like that with him. He sees you and he knows you perfectly. There's nothing that tarnishes or taints or limits or makes his perspective incomplete with you. Now here's the question. One who sees us so clearly, is he fundamentally angry or is he fundamentally kind? But with righteousness, with righteousness, he will judge the needy. And it doesn't mean that he's coming to pick a fight with the needy. What this means is he's coming to judge in favor of the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And I want us to summarize it like this. Jesus is king and a judge who gives perfect justice. He sees all. He knows all. And he comes with a disposition of empathy and love and kindness and favor for the needy and the poor of this world. And so the question that I immediately ask, and I wonder if it's a question that you're immediately asking yourself when we read that, and we read about the poor and the needy in the Bible, and we read about it in a passage like this, is it about those who are physically poor or is it about those who are spiritually poor? We've got to answer that question. Is it physically poor or the spiritually poor? People who are primarily politically more liberal answer the question, well, it's primarily about the physically poor. And so they tend to emphasize things like social justice and things like repentance for sin become de-emphasized. People who are primarily politically more conservative answer the question, well, it's, it's, about, it's primarily about the spiritually poor and needy. And so they emphasize things like repentance of sin and things like social justice becomes de-emphasized. Whether you are a person who leans more liberal or more conservative, what I'm saying is let's be people who are primarily biblical. We get to decide we get to decide how we're going to look and see this today. I wear glasses because I need help seeing. And at some level, we all need help seeing reality for what it is, seeing ourselves for what we are. And we get to decide, are we going to view Scripture through the lens of our history and our cultural and our political vantage point? 
Or are we going to be people who view our history and our culture and our political vantage point through the lens of Scripture? We get to decide that. And if we are going to be people who want to be fully devoted to Jesus, fully devoted followers of Jesus, I'm saying let's be primarily biblical. And let's see ourselves in all of life through the lens of Scripture. And even if you are someone here today and you're like, I don't know if I trust Jesus yet. Even if you're watching online and you're hesitant to be in this room with us and, and you don't know if you can trust Jesus, I'm saying you gotta be primarily biblical and here's why. Because you gotta know who it is you're evaluating. You have to know who it is that you're either rejecting or accepting. And to be primarily biblical means the answer to this question, is it primarily the physically poor or the spiritually poor? It is both. It's both. And it's good for us to remember that Jesus was born into poverty. What was his first crib? It was a feeding trough for animals. And shortly after his birth, Jesus' parents became refugees in need of political asylum. Pastor Tim Keller has a perspective on this that I just find really helpful. He says this, Jesus didn't commute in to help the poor. He participated. It's encouraging. Maybe a little convicting. But what I think it should do is help frame the full scope of the gospel and its implications. What would be wrong is to stop there and to limit it to only that. We need to look at all of what Isaiah had to say. And Isaiah said this. Let me read it again for you. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. And I know what you want to say. You want to say, Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know, you're wondering, okay, this is a message on hope. How is that hopeful? Remember, today is about seeing Jesus. And these words are about Jesus. He is the one who's fulfilled them. And for us to understand them, we have to understand them through what Jesus taught and through how Jesus lived and what he did. This expression right here, the rod of his mouth, what that means are his judgments. What did Jesus say? You should survey the Gospels and look at what, the things that Jesus said. I think about the times that he was with the disciples. And one time he said, guys, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I choose you. He said to the disciples, you are my friends. I think about the time, I don't totally know the backstory. None of us really know the backstory. We don't know if it was a setup. We don't know if it was a trap, but there was a woman caught in adultery. The guy was left behind, but she was brought before Jesus in shame publicly in front of everybody, and religious leaders wanted to kill her. And Jesus looked into her eyes and said, I don't condemn you. When they stretched him out on the cross and the soldiers hammered nails, spikes into his flesh, what did he pray? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they are doing. Like when you really look at Jesus, you don't see a flickering candle of hope. You see a bright, blazing inferno and all-consuming fire of hope for us. But this is a problem, isn't it? I mean, I don't think anybody here would say I'm morally perfect. I don't think anybody here would say that I'm without morally regret. We got a real problem with sin and guilt and moral mess-ups of our own making and our lives. As we also have to remember what Jesus said. He said, repent and follow me. And that there is love and acceptance and full inclusion and a disposition of, I do not condemn you for all people who would come to Jesus and say, I'm a sinner in need of you and your grace. But we come to him with a position of, I'm dying to myself, and I repent, and I turn and trust in you, and Jesus gives all of that to us. That he is a perfect judge who would rather put the sentence of sin on himself 
than on you and me. And I don't know who said it first, but years ago I came across this and I want to share it with you. Somebody said that the gospel is the only story in which the hero dies for the villain. Continuing in Isaiah, he describes him. He says, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness will be his sash. And I wanted to pause and highlight these for you because this is talking about priestly garments. The one who comes wears priestly garments because he's a priest. And there are many jobs and roles and responsibilities of a priest, but maybe the most important task of a priest is to make sacrifices for the sins of God's people. And Jesus is a priest who is the sacrifice for the sins of all people. It goes on to say, in a real beautiful expression, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them, the cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like ox, the infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put his hands into the viper's nest, They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. This is the place of God's presence, the seat of his rule and reign. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And what is Isaiah saying for us? Jesus is king and a priest who takes away death. It's probably a little over 15 years ago. My uh, son Jack, who's now 16, he was a baby. And uh, we were in a uh, we were in our we were at a street fair in our small town, and uh, it was a real colorful town full of colorful characters. And there's a guy at the street fair walking around with his pet snake, and it was like a python or a boa, one of the like big thick ones that you know it's like constricts you know all that kind of stuff. And I was across the street and I watched as he walked up to my wife who was holding baby Jack, uh, so that Jack could see the snake. And without warning, my son just reached out and grabbed him by the, the throat, by the throat. And like he, like with defiance, like he was channeling the spirit of Samuel L. Jackson or something. It was, and like you, I, I look back on this story and I laugh, but there was an instant and there was an instant that felt like time stopped and everything in me said, my child is dead. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young will put its hand into the viper's nest. No fear. I love being a pastor. I don't just love like being a pastor in general. I love you. I love being your pastor. But there is something that being a pastor has produced in me. It has produced a real kind of hate. I hate death. I hate death when it's someone who's old. I hate death when it's someone who is young. I hate watching the carnage that erects in the lives of people, in your lives. But as much as I hate it, Jesus hates death more. And he never intended for life to be temporary. And the reason that there is hope in him is because in his kingdom and in his presence, and when he returns, death will be nothing more than an absurd memory. People need hope. And I think we have an advantage because of where we live. Because of where we live, I think we have a bit of an advantage in understanding how desperate people are for hope. We live in a city where people travel from all over the country, from all over the world, coming, looking to find hope. Hope from sickness, hope from pain, hope from death. 
Some of you here in this room might be here right now because you're looking for that kind of hope. Some of you in this room are the people that people turn to looking for that hope. It's something that amazes me about this city. It's something that I deeply admire about many of you. If we're going to take Advent seriously, if we're going to take Isaiah seriously, I mean, we've got to reckon with. I mean, we've got to really wrestle down what kind of hope we're looking for and where we're going to find it. I mean, you guys know this. If we were able to accomplish all the good things that we aim to accomplish, if you were the good and marvelous work that you do, if you were able to accomplish all that you aim to accomplish, it ultimately results in a hope that will end in death. We stand today at the climax of human history. All of human history, all the good things that we've learned, all the things that we've accomplished, all the things that we're able to produce, it has led us to a point where we can achieve good things. We can, we can achieve for ourselves a kind of hope, but it's a hope that will eventually disappoint. I'm reminded of something from a pastor named John Tyson. He's a man who I've come to admire over the past number of years. And reading Isaiah causes me to think about something he said recently. He said, our idolatries, these are things we trust in. Things we trust in for significance, for, for security. He said, our idolatries are less like conscious decisions to believe a falsehood and more like learned disappointments to hope and what will disappoint. And I don't share this quote because I'm trying to knock technology or medicine. I'm not. The work that you guys do, it is marvelous. It is good. It is amazing. But it's not the kind of good that can be the ultimate good. And as good as it is, it's not the kind of good that can be the substance of a hope that will never disappoint. We need a hope that will never run out, that will never expire. And biblical hope, it's not wishful thinking. It's not conjuring up emotion and it's not denying reality. It is certainty. I want you to think about it like this. Hope isn't positive thinking. It is trust placing. And every single one of us are looking to something or to someone that that is my confidence. That's where I'm placing my trust. That is where hope is going to come from. And we all need a hope that is never going to expire, that is never going to run out, that is never going to disappoint. Advent is a time where we naturally, and it's good, Advent is a time where we naturally look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, and we ought to do that. But we're only halfway participating in Advent unless we also pivot our attention and focus to the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, there is only hopes that disappoint. But with the resurrection, with the resurrection, there is a hope that proves all of our fears are frauds. And even our worst hurts are only temporary. Jesus is a king who is over all. Jesus is a king and a judge who sees all. And Jesus is a king and a priest who gave all. What are we going to do with this gracious, generous gift of hope that he extends to you and to me?